This is our fifth Sabbath in the camp toward Pentecost. Only two weeks and, well, two weeks to go. And then the next day is it. We also have a transition to a new month uh, this coming week. We'll have the New Moon Bible Study at 7.30 on Thursday. 7.30 Thursday evening for Bible Study. I just heard yesterday that... Uh, there was a notable death within the Church of God. Uh, Roderick Meredith died Thursday night. He was, I guess, the last of the early uh, evangelist ordinations. There may be, I think, one or two left who were ordained many years later and raised to that rank. But of the original men who started in Ambassador the first few years, uh, all are now gone. Uh, I think that portends that we're very, very near the end of this. Uh, don't have too far to go. <clears throat> now, last week I ended up in Matthew 23 uh, in regards to this situation that we find ourselves in the end time, the self-righteousness that God enumerated that we are suffering here in the end time. Uh, how those who were would be in the church here at this time in history, or in prophecy, if you will, uh, would not know that they're naked and blind and deaf, cannot see nor hear spiritually. Now, most in the church think that they are, at this point, Philadelphians, and that the problem lies with others. However, uh, the Scripture shows, I think, that worldwide was indeed Sardis. It is dead today, and only a few names remain from it. Uh, and that most of us went into Laodiceanism, including yours truly, uh, and into self-righteousness, which when you assess that you're okay and you must be a Philadelphian, and God says you're naked and blind... Uh, and don't see, to anoint your eyes with eye salve and seek counsel of Him to find true righteousness, that means that the church was self-righteous. And I've not really taken the bull by the horns and grappled with self-righteousness, I don't think, in the past, to truly define it and understand it so that we might be able to see it in ourselves. I think I stated last week that we certainly feel that we have a great capacity to observe self-righteousness in others. So I asked the question, what is it in others that we tend to be able to think we see so very clearly that we have trouble seeing in ourselves? Uh, self-righteousness just in the word itself, indicates that someone feels that they are righteous. Now, we all would say and give lip service to the idea that we are not perfect, that we still need to grow, that we need to overcome. So, none of us would say we are righteous, I don't think. I've run into very few people who would say that, and yet by their actions and in their behavior they indicate that they have a righteousness level higher 
than those around them. So when someone is self-righteous, they are elevating themselves in some form or another. And once you get in that position of saying that you are maybe not perfect, but righteous, you become blind to what your real problems are. And once you're blind to them, you do not work hard at overcoming them because they are diminished in your eyes and we deceive ourselves to the point that we don't see ourselves as others see us, nor do we see ourselves as God sees us. Therefore, we become lukewarm. In other words, if you don't see a dire need to change, you won't work at it very hard. And if you don't work at it very hard, you're not going to accomplish much. Okay? Very little is accomplished in human endeavor without some hard work involved. Things don't just come that easily. They have to be worked at. So what God is saying there, when he says you're lukewarm, is you're not really working at it. You're not showing the kind of zeal that is necessary to love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. I'm going to give you a definition today of self-righteousness. And then we're going to go into the Scripture and see it all laid out for us very, very clearly. If you don't have it defined in a way that you can understand it, how are you going to deal with it? Now, why do you look up a word in a dictionary? The main reason you look a word up is because you don't know what it means. You don't grasp it. You might have a pigment of an idea of what it might be, but you don't really know what the word means, so you get out the dictionary and look it up and check the definition and the synonyms, and then you get a better idea of what that word means. So when it comes to self-righteousness, unless you truly define it, you're going to have trouble dealing with it. Now, Job was a man who was very self-righteous. Now, he also was not overtly sinning in any way, and God used that lack of sin to puzzle Satan. You see, Satan is an accuser of the brethren, and he has to have something to accuse with. And with Job, there was nothing there that Job was doing that Satan could use. So instead of saying, well, Job is doing this, 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 and this, all Satan could reply was, if you turn me loose on him, I can make him turn against you. Even as Satan himself had turned against God. Satan is the most self-righteous being in the universe. And he does not see his problem for what it is. Even as self-righteous humans do not see their problem for what it is. Although they think they can recognize it very easily in others. And I'm going to show you why they feel they can see it so easily in others. And why they can't see it in themselves. That we need to grasp 
because Revelation makes it very clear that here in the end time, that would be the major problem with the church. And we would be spewed out, and indeed we have been spewed out. And if you're part of the spewing, that means you're not a Philadelphian, but a Laodicean. Now, which of us can say we're not part of the spewing? When it splinters into three or four hundred, one of the three or four hundred can't say, I'm the only one that wasn't spewed. We were all spewed. Worldwide is, was dying and is dead. Only a few names remain from Worldwide Church of God. It did not have a door that could not be shut because the door has been shut. Right? So that leaves, that leaves all of us then as Laodiceans. Some will buy counsel of Christ and will come to form the Philadelphia era. It has not yet existed. Its leadership is defined in Scripture in Revelation 11 and Zechariah 4 and other places. And the people who do repent and buy counsel of Christ and overcome their Laodicean self-righteousness, 10% is all, will come to build the final temple under the two witnesses. That's the way the story is laid out in Scripture. So, are we going to be part of that 10% or are we not? We need to be educated so that we know what to do. So let's try to understand how not all those others out there are naked and blind and can't see, but let's understand why I can't see. It's got to start somewhere. You can't blame the other guy. Let's define self-righteousness then. Well, let me, let me, uh, let's go back to Matthew 21, and I'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, we've already covered Matthew 21, 2, and 3 last week, but I want to go back over here and point out the prophetic emphasis and importance of these chapters leading up to Matthew 24 and 25, because they are indeed part of a prophecy. We've already seen in Revelation 3 a prophecy about how we would be. Now, let's understand that everything that was written in this scripture was written for those upon whom the ends of the world would come. That would be you and me. That's what this Bible was written for, was for you and me at the end. In the early New Testament church, they had the apostles to preach vocally, audibly, the Word of God. And... They were inspired to write it down so that it might be here for us. So this is written to you and me. This isn't something about scribes and Pharisees 2,000 years ago. It is a prophecy for right now. And I think we'll see that as we go through. Now here in Matthew 21, I'll pick it up with the parable of the householder who had planted the vineyard, and we covered it. But the point is... Uh, the owner had sent employees, uh, different ones, to oversee his vineyard, and they had been uh, killed, they had been disrespected, and died. 
So he says, if I send my own son, surely they'll respect him. Now, how can we miss that over the last 6,000 years, God has sent different ones, prophets, kings, judges, different ones to physical ancient Israel and then a ministry to New Testament Israel to teach them, to guide them, to lead them toward God. And almost invariably, and I might even say invariably, all those whom God sent throughout history were disrespected, they were jailed, they were persecuted, they were tormented, they were killed. And that continued even into the New Testament when all the apostles, except John, the final one, were martyred. So they were persecuted, they were hated, and then they were killed. John had perhaps more of the love of God than any of them, and perhaps in mercy, uh, he is the one that God preserved to give us the last of the end time message. Not only the Gospel of John, but first, second, and third John about the kind of love that we have to come to have, uh, coupled with the book of Revelation about the beautiful and horrible things that are going to occur between now and the establishment of the kingdom of God. So him, they did not kill, but the story is that they put him in boiling oil. <laughs> uh, their intent was to kill him too, but apparently God uh, created a miracle there whereby John was not harmed, but lived, even as Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel were in another end-time book uh, about today. So the story here that Christ is laying out is that God had attempted to send a message to people throughout history, and they always rejected it. And we will find that that is true in the end time as well. Now, let's understand that through the book of Matthew, and we went through some of it last week, the Pharisees and Sadducees had been a pain to Christ throughout. They were always pestering him, uh, bugging him, trying to find anything against him, trying to kill him, and yet we saw an instance where he was even eating with them. Uh, but it turns here. It turns. He no longer is going to consider them a fly buzzing around his head and kind of swatting at it a little bit. He's going to take something and skewer them. So there is a change in approach. Just as we and our self-righteousness have been a pain to God, and he even said that we make him suffer with our sins there in Isaiah. So we have been kind of a pain in the neck to God throughout this end-time church. And we finally became so distasteful that he spewed us out. No doubt it was the true church. No doubt these are the ones that call, God called. Many were called. And then all were spewed, except those who stayed with Worldwide, which is dead. So they're spiritually dead, and the organization is essentially dead. But only a few who came out of there, uh, well, quite a, quite a lot came out. Uh, and yet most of them 
are so self-righteous, they can't be worked with, and 90% are going to reject the true message at the end time, and only 10% will come to build a final temple. That's the story, through Haggai, Zechariah, and through the minor prophets, and all the way through. So Christ begins to explain to these Pharisees that he is the Son of God, and that they would also kill him. So this is prophetic. And they perceived, he did not draw it down to an absolute fine line here, but in verse 45, they perceived he was talking about them. They didn't quite get it, did they? Because they were so righteous in their own eyes, even as we have been so righteous in our own eyes that we think everybody's laid a sin but us. Nearly every group out there, nearly every splinter of worldwide, considers themselves Philadelphians and others the Laodiceans. Now, how can they all be right, using Herbert Armstrong's analogy? How could all these churches be wrong, people will say. And he would always say, how can all these churches be right? And he was correct. Now, how can all these three, four, five hundred splinters say, we're the Philadelphians and they're the Laodiceans? Can't be done. So we find ourselves in the same place that the Pharisees were. Some of us will perceive these scriptures are talking about us, and some will not. Most will not. Now, you've never heard Matthew 22, 3, and 4 explain the way I'm about to explain it. You just haven't. It's talking about right now, and it's talking about us. It's not talking about 2,000 years ago. So, they feared and tried to lay hands on him, but they were afraid of the people. They, weren't, they wanted to kill him, but they were afraid of the people. And then he spoke again by parables and talked about how the kingdom of heaven is like a king who made a marriage for his sons, and he bid people to the wedding, and... Some showed up without wedding garments on, and they were rejected. Now, physical Israel was chosen of God to obey God, was given an old covenant of promise, and they always disobeyed. And then he upped the ante to a spiritual level, level where he promised marriage to Christ and eternal life in the kingdom of God forevermore. Now, in the early New Testament church, it started out with great promise in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost, and thousands and thousands were changed, began to follow God's ways instead of pagan ways right there. That's what conversion is, is change in direction, change in approach, uh, living godly instead of ungodly. And that continued for a while, and then trouble began to appear, and there came a great falling away of those who had been called. We've had the same thing happen here in the end-time church 1,900 years later, as it started 1,900 years later precisely. So, many are called, but few are chosen, verse 14. Herbert Armstrong's ministry called many people, 
And out of that, about 10% are going to be chosen to finish the job. The rest will not have their wedding garments on. And to look at Revelation 3, it appears that all were essentially without wedding garments. Remember that parable? All slumbered and slept and were not awake at the switch. And then some wake up. Half would wake up and half would not. Uh, What is it going to take to wake them up? I'll tell you what it's going to take. Ten percent will wake up ahead of time and come out to build a temple. The others will wake up, the other half, about, in the tribulation. That is their chance to wake up, because that kind of pressure will cause that. And Zechariah even indicates about a third would wake up at that time. So 10 and about a third gets you up over around 43%. You're getting up close to half. So the analogy fits. I don't know exactly whether it'll be 50% or not ultimately, but uh, certainly that story puts it within the ballpark. And it's, it's an explanation as well as a prophecy. So many were called and few are now being uh, chosen. Then the Pharisees, verse 15 how they might entangle him in his talk. Now, the point is here that God sent his only begotten son, and they rejected him. He offered a wedding, and many showed up not prepared for that wedding, not properly attired, spiritually speaking, for it. And they want to argue with what God is doing. Now, these Pharisees argued with what God is doing. And I'll show you that people who have been called out of this world in the end time are also going to argue with God about what he does. It's inevitable. It's prophesied. It will happen. So even as these tried to entangle Christ himself, they tried to entangle Peter, Paul, James, John, And all of them as well, did they not? It goes on and on. So they told him, uh, Master, we know you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Neither care you for any man, for you regard not the person of men, and so on. Uh, So they blow smoke up his skirt a little bit, and then they try to entangle him about taxes, and he gave them a perfect answer. You know, Caesar's inscription on it, pay your taxes, no big deal. Now, interestingly enough, there were those who did not believe in the resurrection, and they give this story about marrying seven wives and all this, and who's going to be his wife in the resurrection. And he said that in the resurrection... There won't be marriage as we know it today on a physical level. We'll be married to Christ on a spiritual level. Uh, But they didn't understand because they didn't believe there'd be a resurrection. Now, this is current stuff. I was told just yesterday by someone that I had better forget this idea of a resurrection. That that was Catholic and that it was started in the third century and that they changed the New Testament scriptures Uh, and that there is no such thing as a resurrection. So that doctrine is 
alive and viable today, and it's been presented to me uh, as a representative of God, that I better give up this idea of a resurrection. That the only thing a resurrection is, is uh, the capacity of a man to engender children, is what a resurrection is. Now, I will go along with that to a point. Remember the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac? They were way past the age that there was any possibility that they could engender a child. And then, not only were they past that, but God made them wait a whole long time after telling them that they would, so that there was absolutely no question that Abraham was not going to have a resurrection, and Sarah was not going to get pregnant. And then a miracle occurred. And Isaac was conceived. Can we miss that that's the story of the father and the son? That Christ was miraculously conceived in Mary? And that (coughs) he was then born? Is there any missing the story of Abraham later on after after Isaac was about grown? (coughs) Being told to sacrifice him? And then on a physical level, he was saved. In a sense, resurrected from off that rock altar and those sticks and ropes chaining him down where he was going to die. (coughs) Christ did die. But three days later, he got off off that altar and out of those sticks and those the death that bound him and the rock rolled in front of the tomb and walked out. So yes, Abraham engendering a child was a type of Christ and of, in that sense, a miraculous in conception and resurrection. So the roots of the New Testament are laid in the Old. So when Christ went through exactly what Abraham and Sarah did and Isaac, it's a testimony that the New Testament Resurrection comes out of the Old Testament. It's not a Catholic doctrine started in the third century, I'm sorry. Now, when God gives us physical things in the Old Testament, they are simply a type of the future and a greater fulfillment. And I believe in the resurrection of the dead. If I didn't, I'd go party. Now, what was said in the Scripture? If this stuff isn't true, we might as well all eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die, and that's the end of it. No, there is a resurrection. But notice where this story is. At the end time, there would be those who would not believe in it, and lo and behold, we're in the middle of an end time prophecy here, as we shall see more clearly as we go. Now, let's go on down. <clears throat> they ask him, A lawyer asked him in verse 35 a question to tempt him, see if he knew what he was talking about and what he would say, and if they could condemn him by what he did say. So, verse 36, he says, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? There's ten here. Which one's the greatest? You see how that is supposed to trap him? Because if he said the 
third or the sixth or the ninth, they'd have said, well, how is that more important than this one? So they were, they thought they had him backed into a corner where he would give them his opinion about the greatest one, and then they could trip him up. Now, he didn't go where they thought he'd go. Pay attention now. Jesus said to him, You love the eternal your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great that you're supposed to put God above everything. They couldn't trap him. He went on to finish the answer. Now, they hadn't asked him, what's the second greatest? Did they? No, just the first. They thought they'd get him right there. So he volunteered what was the second most. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as much as yourself. Now, we've already seen in Matthew 23, or no, it's just ahead of it here. We'll get to it in a minute, that they didn't do that. So he says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. These are the two most important principles for us to get. Now, if you love God above everything as you love yourself, you are righteous. No question about it. You're keeping the whole law. You're keeping the intent of the law. That makes you a righteous person. Now, the minute you put anything above God, let's say the split second you put anything above God, you've broken the first and great commandment. Anytime you put yourself above your neighbor in any way, you have broken the second commandment and you are no longer righteous. What have you become? You have become one who is seeking righteousness, who overall considers himself righteous, based on the fact that he rated himself above his neighbor, and said, I'm more righteous than you. He has left the righteousness of God and become self Righteous. See how the process works? Self-righteousness, then, is anything that puts you, yourself, ahead of God or ahead of your neighbor. Because he said very clearly, put God above everything and put your neighbor on the same level as yourself. So anytime any of God's instructions are broken because you put your desires, your emotions, your feelings, your comfort ahead of one of God's rules means that you have put yourself above God. Love is God and God is love. And this is the love of God that you keep the commandments. So the second you put yourself ahead of any of God's instructions, you have put yourself literally ahead of God. And that 
is the righteousness of self above the righteousness of God. So it becomes easy to define. Any time I put myself in thought or action above any of the rules of God and break them in thought or in deed, I am self-righteous. Now, do you think you can begin to find self-righteousness in yourself? It's defined as anything that you do or think that is above God's law or apart from God's law or breaks it. And the wages of sin is death. Now, it might become even more easily apparent in your relationship with other people. God doesn't say we have to love other people more than we love ourselves. We have to love God more than we love ourselves. But he never says we have to love our neighbor more than ourselves. <clears throat> but he very clearly says here, you're to love your neighbor as much as yourself. That's why he says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Don't do anything or say anything or think anything about your neighbor's that you would not think, say, or do to you. You know what? That eliminates putting down the character or diminishing in any way your neighbor. Do you like to be talked about? Do you like to be backbit? and gossiped about, and your sins pointed out. Not at all. In fact, you get very defensive the moment someone tries to tell you what your sin is. We all have that self-defense mechanism built in. Therefore, we get our pride and our ego swells the minute somebody tries to point out our error. And we get offended, and we get mad, and we get angry, and we get hurt, and we get frustrated. Why? Because we value ourselves higher than their opinion of us. And we are not meek and humble by nature. We are proud, egotistical, vain, and selfish by nature. <clears throat> so any time... You do anything or say anything or think anything about your neighbor that you would not want thought, said, or done to you, you have broken the second commandment and you have become self-righteous because you value your position higher than theirs. I may not be as righteous as God, but I'm certainly more righteous than you. Now, we might not admit to ourselves we're thinking that, but aren't actions stronger than words or than our thoughts? Do we indulge in character assassination of our neighbors? We all have. We probably all still will. Because we value our opinion and our assessment and our judgment above them. We do not love them as much as we love ourselves. We love ourselves more, and therefore we will put them down in order to feel better about ourselves. 
Now, we have to define self-righteousness if we can see it. How do you think you see it so easily in others? Is because you see them putting themselves first. Sometimes you see them putting themselves above God's law and instructions. And sometimes you see them putting themselves above another human being. And you can assess that they have too high a value of themselves. So you conclude they're self-righteous. You are using the correct definition of self-righteousness in a judging other self-righteous. But you don't use the same definition on yourself. Therein lies the problem. Anytime I put my wants or desires ahead of any of God's instructions, I am putting myself above God. Blasphemy. Anytime I put myself above my neighbor by feeling that I am smarter, more righteous, more qualified, and able to judge or condemn my neighbor or put him down or assassinate his character, that's blasphemous. It breaks the second commandment. Why does he say in Proverbs that he hates anyone who bears false witness against his neighbor or has evil imaginations about his neighbor? He says those are abominations to him. They break the second commandment very, very clearly. <clears throat> now you need to, and I, need to work on this. To use the same definition on ourselves that we have used on others. We thought we could see their lack of righteousness, and therefore we could judge or condemn in whatever fashion we desired. But we have this incredible ability to have mercy on ourselves and overlook or justify our sins against God and against neighbor. We do it. Now, you might not, if you define yourself, say, I would do that. But the fact is, we do it. We give lip service to God, and we go ahead and treat our neighbor as less than ourselves. Now, that's what Satan did. <clears throat> Satanic. He put his desire for power above God and rebelled against God. Mankind's been doing it ever since. And he had judged the holy angels of God as unholy and took a third of them into the same unholiness that he descended into. All right. The sovereignty of God is involved here. So, the Pharisees, in verse 41, gathered themselves together. Now, this time, they didn't ask him a question. He's turning this whole thing around. He asked them a question. What was the question? What think you of Christ? Whose son is he? So, they answered, the son of David. Now, it was clear 
that there would be a Messiah come, that he would be in the line of David. They could read that in the Old Testament. So they were willing to say that when the Christ appeared, he would be in the line of David. On the other hand, they had been rejecting the true Christ all this time. They were still looking for their Messiah. And lo and behold, the Jews still, as a religion, deny Christ to this day and are looking for their own Messiah yet to come. So that's the issue that he nailed them with here. <clears throat> well, he'd be the son of David, obviously. <clears throat> he said to them, How then does David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit on my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? They didn't believe in the resurrection, okay. And David superseded the one who would become the Messiah, or the Christ. So how could Christ be talking to David before Christ was even born? And that tangled them up in their doctrine and their beliefs to the point they couldn't answer. No man was able to answer him a word, and notice, neither dared any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. He laid his sovereignty on the line and made it clear to them who he was, and they could not rebut it, but they would not accept him, and they didn't ever ask him another question. They killed him later, but they didn't ask him any more questions. Now, notice what he said after that episode. He spoke to the multitude and his disciples, and he gives a description of the scribes and Pharisees, and we went through it last week. And he called them all kinds of reprehensible names. Now, before, he had kind of let them be, but they would never accept him. And then when he laid it on the line about the first two commandments, or the two that summarize all of them, and then laid it on the line who he was, then he turned around and told them what they were. Whited walls, sepulchers, dirty cups on the inside, snakes, sons of snakes, sons of their father the devil, and on and on, because they would go on about all the little fine details of the law, but could not come to see mercy and love and kindness and the weightier things of the law. So he says, you're just like a sepulcher full of dead men's bones. You polish it and paint it on the outside, but the stink is there. And he said, woe to them, I think three times. Then he goes down. In verse 37, and is referring to those who represented Jerusalem, which would have been them. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that kill the prophets and stone them which are sent to you. Now that has been the history of Israel all the way through. And 
It was true of John the Baptist, whom they ridiculed. Christ had sent him. And they ridiculed and killed Christ, the greatest prophet of all. Now, his attitude was, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, and you wouldn't come? Now, if you've been engraved in the city, you don't know what this is talking about, perhaps, but when a mother hen hatches out those little chicks, she has a particular cluck that she uses. And that cluck, the, the chicks recognize, and they come running to mother. And if they get a few days old and begin to get too far from her, where a cat or a, anything could get them, she starts clucking, and they run back and get under their mother for protection. So just like a mother hen, Christ says, that's the way I was to Israel. But you would not listen to me. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall not see me henceforth till you shall say, Blessed is he that comes by the authority of the Eternal. Now, he was speaking to physical Jews here. But as I said at the beginning, all these prophecies are for the spiritual Jews at the end of the age. Get it? These prophecies are for us. They're not about those ancient Pharisees. He says he would have gathered us, but we wouldn't listen to him. And we have a house left desolate. Our church home, Worldwide Church of God, is desolate and dead. And we still won't listen to him when he says he spewed us out because we were blind and naked and deaf and dumb spiritually. And we blame it on everybody but ourselves. Everybody's laying us in but me. I'm a Philadelphian. We are so self-righteous. Do you still put yourself above God and His instructions and thought or in action? I doubt a day goes by that any one of us does not do that. Somehow we put our desire, our comfort above God. And I'll probably be able to guarantee that we break the second one by somehow putting ourselves above those around us in thought or in action, in judgment, in condemnation, accusation, evil imagination, or whatever. And our house is now desolate. And all those older leaders are dying. And the ones who came a little later are also getting old and retiring and dying. And Christ says when this thing starts over, there will only be a few old men left who remember worldwide before it began to go south. And they'll compare the old with the new and say the new is better. We have got to become more righteous rather than self-righteous if we're to be used of God in the end-time work. <clears throat> the end-time work is all ahead of us. Herbert Armstrong was used to call many. The end-time work is going to have a few chosen 
to finish it. Ten percent. Very clear throughout Scripture. Now, he is going to send some in the end time to the end time spiritual Jews. They also will not be accepted, as we shall see. Now, let's go to Matthew 24, because this is all a continuing story here about the end time. Now, once he gets talking about the self-righteous end-time Christians here, and that's who he's addressing, he addresses end-time events in chapter 24. And he says the temple would be torn down. Now, has that happened to the spiritual temple, the church? Pretty well torn down. It's kind of hard to find one stone on top of another anymore, isn't it? All independent, going their own way. We've come to the place in Israel again, spiritual Israel, where everybody does that which is right in his own eyes. And they say the people are also holy, and we don't need ministers because we too are holy, and we can study, and we're just as good as the ministers. In fact, we're better than they are, so we condemn them. Isn't that what's been done in the past? Is it not what's being done right now as we speak? And we'll see a warning against that before we're done if I hurry. So he said the temple would be torn down. And then they says, well, what's the sign of your coming into the world? Well, after the temple's torn down, he says, <clears throat> there'll be wars and rumors of wars. This must happen. Don't get too panicky yet. And how there'll be famine and pestilence and nation against nation. And it's never been like it is right now today in the news. I mean, things are getting tight in Washington and in other nations and... Tempers are beginning to flare, and people are beginning to prepare for war all around the world. World War III is not very far away, and neither is civil war within our nation, because Jeremiah says it's going to happen. Jeremiah 1551. <coughs> Violence in the land, ruler against ruler. We're having threats of assassinations, we're having threats of coups, we're having threats of all kinds of things that are about to happen. And these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they're going to begin to deliver you up and kill you. And many will be offended and betray one another, verse 10, and shall hate one another. And false prophets will arise and deceive many. So false teachings will start to come up. Had some this last week. Somebody trying to convince me of old false doctrines and heresy that have been around for decades and decades that I've already looked at. And I know they're wrong. I've proved they're wrong. But some people still believe them. And they'll deceive others. Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Well, iniquity must be abounding. And the love of many is waxing cold. And they don't love each other as they love themselves. And they don't love God because they don't love the ones that God sends. This is the way he said it would be. But if you endure to the end, you'll be saved. Through all this, it's starting to go on. And then he talks about the end-time work in verse 14. It wasn't Herbert Armstrong. He didn't do verse 14. He thought he was going to, but he didn't. He did Matthew 28, end of the chapter, where it says that he would be used to call many. But he didn't do this. 
The gospel will be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations, and then shall the end come. He didn't finish preaching the gospel to the world. In fact, he hardly even preached toward the end. Ted did all of that. And Ted didn't get on around the world with the gospel. He got around somewhat with a story about whales and platypuses, but not the gospel of the kingdom of God. And he's been dead for a long time now, and so is his dad. Thirty years ago, Herder Armstrong died. And the end hasn't come. He was not the Elijah to come. He did not restore all things. We've learned a lot of things since he died, have we not? Did he restore them all? He never knew where the promised land was, nor where Jerusalem or Zion is. <laughs> never knew. No, he did not fulfill all these things. And the end hasn't come. And we didn't see the abomination of desolation stand in the holy place other than in a spiritual sense within the church of God where false preachers stood up and defiled the truth. So they were a type of that, even as Herbert and Ted Armstrong were a type of the two witnesses to come. So were the false teachers who stood up in worldwide and led it astray. And there will be yet another. So when you see that abomination stand in the holy place, and the holy place has to be built before that can happen, then you flee if you're in Judea. Well, none of the church is in what they call Judea in the Middle East today, except a few who've gone over there thinking it's the right place. <clears throat> you flee to the mountains when you see this. And it's the mountains of Judea, which are in southern Utah, is where it is. Let's not get into that anymore right now. That isn't the point of today. Because as soon as this happens will be great tribulation, such as has never been on the earth. And that has not happened yet. Uh, so it is still prophecy to come. But he's talking about the end time church here, obviously. This is it. Well, so was chapter 21, 22, and 23 leading up to this about the end time church. When he brands us self-righteous in Revelation 3, he says the same things here in Matthew that he says there in Revelation 3 about us. We better get this defined and we better get it fixed. Because he self said self-righteousness isn't going to get it. <clears throat> he says in Isaiah 54 that <clears throat> those that he gathers will have his righteousness. And I, I thought for a long time, what, do you, what does that mean? And right now we're seeing it understood. What it means is, you have to put God ahead of everything. He says, when you, there in Jeremiah, he says, when you seek me with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, then you will find me. Obviously, in our Laodicean condition, we were not doing that because we felt we were essentially okay and we're going to the place of safety and of the kingdom of God. We thought we had it made, essentially. So we weren't really working at growing and overcoming. We didn't have a burr under our saddle because we realized that we lacked so much that we fell so far short of never putting ourselves and our desires ahead of God and we thought we loved our brothers in the church, but we gossiped and nitpicked and condemned and accused them. 
of various and sundry sins. Instead of getting the beam out of our own eye, we were trying to get the mote out of their eye. Which tells you that you're self-righteous. I'm qualified to get the mote out of their eye. And you considered it a beam. No. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not anybody else's. We weren't fearing and trembling before God. We were going on thinking that we would be accounted worthy to escape. That we had a ticket to get on the plane to Petra, which turns out to be the wrong place, and we won't go by plane anyway. We'll walk from Jerusalem, and we will have been renewed so we can walk. If we are accounted worthy when this is all done. If we get rid of the self-righteousness and come to have the righteousness of God. Did we get it? The definition of self-righteousness is any time you put yourself above any of God's instructions or any time you raise yourself up above your neighbor and think or say something about them that you would not want said or done to you. Now, are we all self-righteous to the core, deceitful and desperately wicked? And we continually put our wants and desires ahead of God's law. And we continually put ourselves above our neighbors by the way we act and talk and think. That is self-righteousness. Now, you could see people doing that and you said, there's a self-righteous person. But how many called out ones are able to look at themselves and see their own self-righteousness? Job had a terrible time seeing it, didn't he? Now, how did God finally, man couldn't do it, but God had to show him. He showed him things that he had done that Job couldn't do. He showed him how much greater than himself he was. And when Job finally saw the vast difference between what God is and what he was, he finally saw his own self-righteousness. Now, if we can see and measure how deeply flawed we are, and how much greater God is than us, we would be scratching gravel to make some changes. But the problem is we don't see it in ourselves, and therefore we don't scratch gravel to make the changes. We go on putting up with our own problems year after year after year. He that overcomes shall inherit my kingdom. Not he who sits and doesn't do anything because he's too self-righteous to realize what he really has to do. Oh, they're the Laodiceans. We're part of the Philadelphians. It says nothing wrong about us. We're okay. Follow me. Be in my group, and you'll, be, you'll make it. Balderdash! The ones that say that are self-righteous themselves. 
Now let's draw this down a little closer. Go to Zechariah 1. Now here's the story that Herbert Armstrong minimally, minimally <laughs> began to understand because he told me in 1981 that he was Zerubbabel, and in that implied that his son was Joshua here. And Ted had a lifestyle that was uh, less than godly in many ways, and Herbert Armstrong was not perfect himself. It even says, our first father is sin there in Isaiah. So he wasn't perfect by any means, although he was used of God. And others questioned God using Herbert Armstrong and wrote books about it because they couldn't accept God's appointing of Herbert Armstrong. They decided they could determine the level of righteousness that Herbert Armstrong had. So they wrote books about him, and they dissed him left and right. They called him a false prophet. I have no doubt in my mind God sent Herbert Armstrong to give us the truth 1,900 years after Christ proclaimed it. The time schedule was perfect. And what he taught us was essentially correct. But people were not willing to accept God's judgment in that, and they decided they were capable of determining the level of righteousness of Herbert Armstrong, and that their judgment was greater than God's. That was self-righteousness. That was putting their judgment ahead of God's judgment. Now, is there a warning about that? Because Herbert Armstrong did zeal, and that's what first put me on to Haggai and Zechariah when he told me he was a Rebbebel. So I went back to Montana, where I was at the time, and began looking into that and preached a sermon on it, of which I still have the tape, saying that the latter temple would have to be built. Now, I didn't understand at that time, because I thought Herbert Armstrong was the latter temple. Not until Herbert Armstrong's temple was taken down and not one stone left upon another, and God began to show me some things, did I understand he was the former temple of Haggai. And that the latter temple would yet be built through the ones who would be the final and greater type of the two witnesses. Herbert and Ted Armstrong were minor types, and they are both dead, and all the work that they did essentially is now gone, and it is dead. And some remain out of Sardis, Worldwide Church of God. The rest are in Laodiceanism, including you and me, and we have to come to see our self-righteousness and repent in order to be used as the 10% Philadelphia that will come out of it and finish the work, or do the last work. Now, the book of Haggai details that, and Zechariah 4 says that the two anointed ones that this is talking about are the two witnesses, because Zechariah 11 and Zechariah 4.14 are the only two places in the Bible that they are mentioned. So what happens in the book of Haggai and Zechariah are the work of the two witnesses and the 10% remnant out of the many that were called. That's the story. Now, Haggai wrote about how they'd say the temple doesn't need to be built. It's already built. We're it. We're the Philadelphians. Everything's fine. No, another one has to be built, and God is going to provide the leadership for it. And in the middle of this story in Haggai, which we're very familiar with, 
uh, Zechariah began writing. Now, what did he start out with right in the middle of this story of the end-time work of the witnesses and the 10% faithful? A word came to him, and he said in verse 2, Beginning of his prophecy, the Eternal has been sore displeased with your fathers. Therefore say you to them, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, Turn you to me, says the Eternal of hosts, and I will turn to you, says the Eternal of hosts. Now is that not what he said in Revelation 3? You're blind and naked, and you better buy of me counsel tried in the fire. So Zechariah's message starts out, I've not been happy with Worldwide Church of God. And its leaders are dead, and it is dead and gone. And I'm going to send some more leaders to you. Now, some of you rejected Herbert Armstrong and Ted Armstrong, especially Ted. Was his lifestyle right? In a lot of ways, no. Admittedly, by him. But you know what? God put Ted Armstrong in that position knowing what Ted was and what his tendencies were. Do you believe that? Of course you do. God put him there. Now, did God know Ted Armstrong? Yes, he did. Knew him from birth or before. He knew what kind of person and what kind of character and what kind of weaknesses he would have. And he chose him as a minor fulfillment of the final fulfillment. And that was God's judgment. He chose Harvard Armstrong, who was also flawed. And God was displeased with him. Our first father has sinned. And he's dead. But those who judged Herbert and Ted Armstrong were self-righteous. And they would not accept God's appointment of those two men and God to deal with them as he saw fit. So we've already seen Zechariah's prophecy here partially fulfilled in the end time, have we not? Turn to me with all your heart. Be not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus says the Eternal of hosts. Now, God sent Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the minor prophets, Daniel, the early New Testament ministry, to tell us what we are, to tell us what our problems are, to encourage us to overcome and to grow, and to be what we ought to be, didn't he? And what happened? God is saying it right here. Don't do like they did to the prophets before. Don't do to the last two what you did to Herbert and Ted Armstrong, a lot of you. Now, some worship Herbert Armstrong to this day, and they preach him more than they do Christ. Well, that in, that in itself is idolatry. One of the major ones preaches Herbert Armstrong almost throughout the entirety of their broadcast and rarely really mention God. 
The whole program, basically, is about Herbert Armstrong. Why? Because that person considers Herbert Armstrong the Elijah, and whether he'll admit it or not, and I don't know whether he has, he considers himself the Elisha to follow and do greater work than Herbert Armstrong. So if he gives up the idea that Herbert Armstrong was Elijah, his Elisha idea goes poof. He can't give that up and worship God ahead of, of Herbert Armstrong. He won't. He can't. I won't name names here. you got minds. Now they came and said, Turn from your evil ways and from your evil doings, but they did not hear nor hearken to me, says the Eternal. Oh, it's not the ones that God sent that they have an issue with. It's God. It's God that they have an issue with. Because God surely would not have sent us this type of person. This is a sinner. God wouldn't send us a sinner. Well, duh. He sent Ted Armstrong, who was a sinner, admittedly, from his own mouth, and used him to preach around the world. Not the final time, but he used him in spite of himself. That was God's judgment. Now, he says in Zechariah 3 that the final one is going to be someone who's jerked out of the fire because they had problems and sins and weaknesses. Right? Now, what he says in Zechariah 3? Now, God's judgment is that he's going to call such an one. He said it thousands of years ago. That's the type of person I'm going to call as one of those who's going to preach my gospel around the world as a witness. I'm not going to choose any lily, white, clean, pure individuals. One in particular is singled out as having been filthy and in danger of the fire. Whether that means the tribulation or eternal death is unknown. But ultimately both, without repentance. So God says, I'm going to send you that kind of person. Do not be as the former prophets and reject my judgment. Because if you reject the ones God sent, you're rejecting his judgment. The Pharisees rejected Christ and they were rejecting God's judgment. They also rejected the New Testament ministry, and they were rejecting God's judgment. Well, Peter's this flake, and Paul's too overrighteous, and on and on it goes. They were ultimately killed. Do not reject me, God says. Now, isn't that the way it was with Samuel? They haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. They don't think I should have appointed you, Samuel, but I did. So if I appointed you and they reject you, ultimately they're rejecting me. That's what happened with Moses. The people says, we're holy too. Our judgment's just as good as Moses' judgment. In fact, I think our judgment is better. And we need to get rid of Moses. Isn't that what they said? And God didn't like that. God didn't like that at all. You better be careful, because you don't know what God might be doing. 
Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? I see worldwide dying off. We just had the last early evangelist die two days ago. So basically, those that whole leadership of Worldwide Church of God is now gone. There are a few old guys around who were trained by that work, but they weren't some of the early ones. Those are gone now. Where are they? My words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? And they returned and said, Like as the Lord of hosts thought to do unto us according to our ways and according to our doings, so has he dwelt, dealt with us. There's a warning here. And where is this warning in context? It's right here in the middle of Haggai and Zechariah about the end-time work of God with the two witnesses and the 10% remnant that will come out to form the Philadelphia era of the church. That's what this is about. And it says very clearly that we had better not reject those whom God sends, whoever they are. That we had better be very, very careful that we do not rise up in self-righteousness and put our judgment of those whom God appoints above his judgment. Because that is the epitome of self-righteousness. It's to put our view of anybody God sends above God's view. God knows what he's doing. He will send whom he will send. And he's told us the one of them for sure will have been flawed. And he also says about the other in Zechariah 4 that he better not get the big head because everything that is done is done by the Spirit of God, not by the might or power of man. So both of them are flawed. Now, can you find their flaws? You might. Very possible. So then are you going to put them down and reject them even though God chose them to do the job? You'd better be careful, because Matthew 21 through 24 tell this story. Revelation 3 tells this story. Haggai and Zechariah tell this story. Self-righteousness is the greatest sin of all. <clears throat> You'd better learn what it is and how to see it in self, because it's all about the self. Self-righteous. Let me say it once again in closing. Self-righteousness is defined as any time we put ourselves against above any of the rules of God, we are self-righteous. If we put ourselves above our neighbor in any way, we are self-righteous because we are putting ourselves and our love of self above our neighbor. These are the two great commandments upon which all the words of God are based. All the law and prophets hang on those two principles. And those are the two that we break continually. And we've got to get rid of the self-righteousness and put God above everything and our neighbor up to our level in our own thinking. And when we have done that, we'll have come to have the righteousness of God.